Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Before the 2020 election, investigative reporter Bart Gelman released a massive investigation that revealed the playbook that Republican operatives were planning to use to keep President Trump in power. He was called paranoid, and his piece was derided as fear-mongering. Then the plan began to be run in state after state. Gelman was prescient, not paranoid. Then, after the insurrection at the Capitol, he became a leading authority on the new, darker breed of political tactics on the right, which are fundamentally anti-democratic. Now he's back with a chilling new story in The Atlantic, arguing, as the cover of the magazine says, January 6th was practice. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I'm going to do something a little unusual today. I just want to read you the first two paragraphs of investigative reporter Bart Gelman's new feature in The Atlantic on the planning that's going into subverting the 2024 election. Gelman writes, Technically, the next attempt to overthrow a national election may not qualify as a coup. It will rely on subversion more than violence, although each will have its place. If the plot succeeds, the ballots cast by American voters will not decide the presidency in 2024. Thousands of votes will be thrown away, or millions, to produce the required effect. The winner will be declared the loser. The loser will be certified president-elect. The prospect of this democratic collapse is not remote. People with the motive to make it happen are manufacturing the means. Given the opportunity, they will act. They are acting already. I mean, after January 6th, no one can be surprised that messing with an election in this way has gained credence on the American right. The popular vote gap between Democrats and Republicans has widened, and not even the Electoral College's anti-Democratic components seem likely to give Republican nominees a good chance at taking the presidency. So we're living in this new world, Gelman describes, where one side doesn't have the votes, and the other side cannot respond to the tactics the other side is using. Here to walk us through these dystopian scenarios, we're joined by Barton Gelman, staff writer at The Atlantic. Welcome, Bart. Thank you. Staff writer and dystopia correspondent. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, clearly, at least for a year. Um, Bart, I mean, you're, you're a longtime investigative reporter. So before we get to the substance of your piece, I just have to ask you, can you believe that we find our democracy in this precarious place right now? Can you actually, like, believe it? I say I've immersed myself in this and I still have trouble believing it. And 
I think that disbelief is a central part of the problem we're facing because it is an impediment to action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I just reading your piece, reading your your one in September of last year, both times I thought to myself, like, this. Wait a second. This can't. This can't happen. And yet, then after your September piece, we saw so many of the aspects uh, of what you described just play out right before our eyes. And so, this with this piece, uh, I I believe you this time. We we gotta watch out for this. Um, I want to start back in 2020 and early this year because I think it's crucial for understanding the argument that's in your essay. I want you to walk through the statehouse strategy that the Trump team developed to try to stay in power. I mean, we all remember like total landscaping and Rudy Giuliani's hair dye coming down his face. But what was the real game that was going on there? Right. That, that's exactly the right question, I think. Uh, so what was apparent and evident in front of us was uh, crazy news conferences, uh, crazy quasi-legal state hearings, uh, quote-unquote audits, 65 lawsuits, um, all but one of which were dismissed immediately. Uh, But what was really happening was a struggle for control of state legislatures. And you just have to look at it strategically. Uh, There were something, I want to say it's seven states that are battleground states uh, in a presidential election that Biden won and that are controlled by Republicans in the state house and state Senate. Hmm. That is significant because the constitution uh, in article two uh, from its earliest days gave state legislatures the power to decide how to appoint their electors. And electors are the currency of a presidential election. Uh, For more than 150 years now, every state has allocated its electors according to the outcome of the popular vote in that state. Uh, So we're accustomed to the idea that we're supposed to be able to vote for our own president. Uh, But the Supreme Court has said that under some circumstances, the state legislature can take back the power to appoint electors. And Trump and his people made a concerted attempt uh, in a way that was just literally and flagrantly anti-democratic to persuade the legislatures to throw away the votes for Biden, uh, fire the voters, and simply appoint Trump electors instead. And if they had been able to do that, there would have been a couple more steps, right? Congress would have had to accept those substitute electors, right? Exactly. Uh, Congress would have to accept the substitute electors. Now, uh, there is legislation on how to decide. I mean, you've got a situation where, let's say uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, Biden wins as he did win uh, the vote and the secretary of state uh, signs it and the governor certifies it and passes it along uh, to the National Archives, which is the usual thing. The electors meet on December 14th and cast their ballots for Joe Biden. Meanwhile, the state legislature has said, uh, we don't accept that vote. We believe it's uh, fraudulent or the voting failed for some reason or another. Uh, And we are appointing a slate of Republicans, Trump electors, 
uh, which will be presented to the National Archives under Congress uh, uh, on January 6th. Then Congress is now faced with a dueling slate of electors, two dueling slates, uh, one with the authority of the governor, the other with the authority of the legislature. Uh, and it has to decide which ones count or whether neither counts. Part of Trump's strategy last time was to create enough chaos that Congress would say, uh, we don't have uh, an accurate understanding of who the electors belong to in the state of Pennsylvania, and we're simply going to disqualify them. So all those millions of Pennsylvanians who voted um, are going to be um, discarded, and, and they simply their voices won't be heard in the election. And the significance of that is that if enough states do that, then nobody gets to 270 electoral votes uh, in the Electoral College, and the election is decided instead uh, by vote of the states in the House. Hmm. So in that context of last year, in the run-up to January 6th, the states actually didn't turn. Like, Trump was lobbying them um, to elect this other slate of electors, but they weren't doing it. So then within that context, your story reframes January 6th not just as a bunch of yahoos making a chaotic, destructive ruckus, but rather as part of the actual plan to try to keep Donald Trump in power by essentially buying more time for that lobbying effort, right? Can you describe that? Trump is getting desperate as January 6th approached. January 6th is the final milestone in a presidential race, or I suppose you could say inauguration of January 20th is the final milestone. But the final decision point is January 6th when Congress officially counts the vote. Uh, the Electoral College had gone against Trump, uh, just as the vote had gone against Trump, and he wanted Congress to reverse that somehow, or at minimum to delay certification so that he had more time to twist arms in state legislatures, more time for the state legislatures to uh, take back their votes for Biden, which there's no process to do that. I mean, there's no such thing under the Constitution, but... That's what he was trying to get them to do. Uh, and he needed to buy time. He, he could not allow Congress to finish the count on January 6th. And so two things happened. One is that Sidney Powell, uh, one of his lawyers, uh, on behalf of Louis Gohmert in Congress, filed an emergency application uh, to Sam Alito, who was the circuit justice uh, uh, for the Fifth Circuit from the Supreme Court, saying, please stop the count. Uh, we believe uh, that there are dueling slates of electors, even though there weren't. Uh, and uh, we believe that the Electoral Count Act under which Congress is about to proceed is unconstitutional. Please stop the count or else irreparable harm will be caused. Now, the Supreme Court didn't buy that. So the only other way to stop the count uh, was for Donald Trump to, for Donald Trump to uh, call his supporters to Washington uh, tell them that momentous decisions were being made, that only they could stop it, directing them toward the Capitol and seeing what chaos would ensue. And uh, when the House and Senate uh, were forced to adjourn their joint session because they were overrun by thousands of violent protesters, uh, it seemed for a while as though he might get his wish. When we look at what happened, it does seem like there were just a bunch of near misses where if things had gone slightly differently than these incredibly, what turned out to be incredibly fragile institutions of American democracy, 
which just barely held, might not have. And going into this break, I just want to read from your essay again, from, from your article. In nearly every battle space of the war to control the count of the next election, state houses, state election authorities, courthouses, Congress, and the Republican Party apparatus, Trump's position has improved since a year ago. I, I honestly, <laughs> I almost don't even know what to say because it feels, if you're not inside the Republican Party maelstrom, that some normalcy has returned. But that is clearly not the case. Yeah, it's, it, it's counterintuitive. If Trump could not overthrow an election when he was the incumbent and had the powers of commander-in-chief and chief law enforcement officer, how is it possible that he's in a better position now uh, to succeed in, in the next attempt at a coup? Uh, and it is possible because his, his, his powers are uh, as a private citizen, as a politician, as a leader of tens of millions of passionate supporters, uh, and because uh, his operatives uh, all around the country are tracking down every obstacle to the coup from last time and destroying it. Uh, and so if you were a state election official who said no uh, to his demand to change the vote, um, you're being hounded out of office or made irrelevant by changes in the election law. Uh, uh, and, and essentially, uh, Trump is taking charge of the referees. Yeah. We're talking with The Atlantic staff writer Bart Gelman about his piece, January 6th was practice about the right-wing plans to subvert the next presidential election. And we want to hear from you. Join us with your reactions and questions for Bart. Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. Or you can email your comments and reactions to forum at kqed.org. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with The Atlantic staff writer, dystopia correspondent Bart Gelman, about his piece, January 6th was practice about the right-wing plans to subvert the next presidential election. Very important piece. We want to hear from you. Join us with your reactions to what you're hearing from Bart Gelman this morning or questions. Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch 
all the social media ways. We're KQED Forum, and the email address is forum at kqed.org. So a lot of the story that you tell in your New Atlantic feature is really about how people came to believe the, the big lie. Like, who are the people who came to believe that this election was stolen? And what has it done to them to believe this lie? How did you go about kind of trying to report that out? Well, uh, I guess I went about it from the top down and from the bottom up. Uh, I, I went and looked for people to interview. I was looking for someone who was willing to do something lots of people aren't. Uh, and I, I met a New York City firefighter at a protest in Washington on behalf of the January 6th defendants. That is to say, he, he believed they were, uh, as he called them, Pelosi's political prisoners. Uh, he thought that uh, the charges were bogus, uh, that, uh, that the people who demonstrated on January 6th were patriots uh, who were trying to uh, uh, protest against an, a stolen election and so on. He was willing, as lots of people are not, to really, to really work with me, to really sit with me over many, many hours and talk through what he believed and why he believed it and uh, hear me out when I challenged his beliefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the end result of that was uh, I didn't budge this firefighter one bit. Hmm. Uh, he, he, he would give me a, frankly, uh, nutty story about voter fraud or about January 6th. And I would research it and I would come back to him and say, here's what the research shows. Uh, and he simply wouldn't believe me. Uh, you know, I'll, give, I'll give you one example. He told me uh, two somewhat contradictory things. He told me that there was no violence on January 6th. Uh, uh, and then he said that if there was violence, it was it was uh, a jeune provocateur, uh, that, they were, that they were actually members of Antifa and US special forces working for a joint conspiracy uh, between Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell. Uh, who had both planted these special forces there for reasons unknown, uh, to, but to perform the violence that would uh, look bad for the patriots. So I said, well, how do you know that? That's a remarkable thing to say. And he said, well, you've got to look up a general named McInerney. You could find his videos on Rumble. So I go to Rumble. I find McInerney. He's a 84-year-old retired Air Force general. Uh, and he does indeed say that special forces were disguised as Antifa and causing the trouble. Uh, so I called up this general. I said, how do you know that? Uh, what makes you say so? He, uh, the general also said that these special forces were the ones who stole Nancy Pelosi's laptop and that they were uh, they had found evidence of treason by Pelosi and Trump was about to uh, reveal all this and the plot goes on and on. Well, he told me he had a source he couldn't he couldn't reveal, but the source had seen a bunch of guys with crew cuts who looked like special forces to the source. Uh, and he heard one of them say, we're playing Antifa today. That was all of his evidence. <laughs> uh, and I said, well, what about the laptop? How did you know that they stole a laptop? And he said, uh, well, one of them had something square looking under his coat. And I said, 
but you can't know that's a laptop, right? And you can't know that that was Nancy Pelosi's laptop and you can't know what was on it. He said, well, no, I, I can't. I just, I, but, but it stands to reason. So, I mean, the guy doesn't even claim to have proof right. uh, for most of what he says. I bring this back to my firefighter, my new friend uh, from the demonstration. And uh, I point out that, for example, that there's, there's no a, evidence of any of the things that there, he, he said. Yeah, I mean, and that there's counter evidence. I mean, for example, the, the laptop was stolen allegedly by a home health aide, home health aide, and a Nazi sympathizer who's been charged with a crime because she videotaped herself doing it. Uh, and you know, I say all that, and he, he just doesn't believe me. He's got. I mean, there's been there's been a volume of propaganda uh, that has poured into his head that that makes all efforts to, to test it uh, irrelevant. I, you know, you could call it motivated reasoning. Uh, I personally think he's just been overwhelmed. Yeah. So that's the bottom-up version of it. You also talked to some political scientists who have done some pretty worrying research on who's most likely to have gotten behind the big lie and, in fact, to believe about it, believe it, uh, believe it with the kind of force that makes them okay with political violence. So one part of that is an, a series of national public opinion polls. And based on the things that uh, the January 6th insurgents were saying, they wanted to find out how many Americans believe both of two propositions. One, uh, the election was stolen from Donald Trump uh, and Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. And number two, violence is justified to restore Donald Trump to the presidency. Uh, not might be justified, or you could imagine it, uh, but violence is justified. Uh, that turns out to be 21 million Americans, uh, which is a catastrophic number. It, 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 is, uh, it is a profoundly worrying thing for democracy that we have 21 million Americans running around. Uh, who believe both of those propositions. Uh, and the public opinion poll probed for other things that unite these people. What else do they believe? Uh, it found that a slim majority of them believed uh, in the fundamental premises of QAnon uh, was one thing, but the largest thing that they all believed in, uh, a strong, more than two thirds majority believed in something called the Great Replacement. Uh, they believed that black and brown people uh, are replacing uh, white Christian Americans of European descent. Uh, they, are, uh, they are displacing them from, from their rightful place in society, uh, that they are acquiring more white rights than white people, and so on. Uh, and this is formerly a fringe opinion of uh, white power extremists, uh, both in Europe and in the United States. Uh, but it has become much less fringe now that Donald Trump has borrowed from those tropes, has used similar rhetoric. And now that the most uh, watched newscaster, not only on the right, but in America, uh, uh, Tucker Carlson, has made the Great Replacement an explicit part of, of, uh, of his broadcast. He, he, and, and so you have people who believe they're being replaced. And by the way, uh, a study of the insurgents and where they came from 
which counties they come from across America, showed they were much more likely to come from a county uh, in which the white population was in decline uh, between uh, last, the last census and this new one. Yeah. We're talking with the Atlantic staff writer, Barton Gelman, about his piece, January 6th was practice, about the right-wing plans to subvert the next presidential election and all that is happening in the Republican Party. We want to hear from you. Join us with your reactions and questions for Bart Gelman. Give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email forum at kqed.org. A lot of what's coming in from our listeners, I think I would describe as despair. Um, San, for example, writes, uh, it never really stopped. And what are Democrats doing about it? Barely a thing, trying to tackle too many issues at once instead of concentrating solely on this. That 50-50 split in Congress has at, has at the moment will be gone next year, opening it back up to Trump in 2024. DNC just doesn't seem to be aware of this or at worst indifferent. I don't know why I seem to think of this as an emergency and they're just going about their business. Janice writes, the far right under Trump, undermining democracy is completely alarming. I feel as though I'm living in 1930s Germany and this is building to a crisis. What is the Democratic Party doing? What can, should they do? Richard writes on Instagram, I've followed similar lists for years, a backsliding democracies list, and for 15 years I would have bet my entire 401k that the U.S. would never be on the backsliding democracies list. But here we are. It's mind-boggling, it's disturbing, and it's embarrassing. Guess that shining city on a hill moniker needs to pass to another country. So, Bart, what is, what is, what are the Democrats doing about this? I mean, I do, it does feel, in your story, you try to address what Biden has said. And, I mean, to put it frankly, you basically say it's completely inadequate to the, to the challenge. Well, the interesting thing is what he said, uh, at least on some occasions, is, is, uh, Absolutely commensurate to the challenge. He gave a speech in July at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, in which he talked about uh, these election subversion moves that the Republicans are making. Although uh, he was barely willing to say the word Republican, uh, never said the word Trump, and and uh, was bending over backwards uh, to make this seem apolitical. But he said election subversion that we're seeing right now is the gravest threat to democracy since the Civil War. That, that is a strong statement from the President of the United States. Mm -hmm. And you would expect it to be accompanied by strong action. You would expect a president who thought we were having our gravest test of democracy since the Civil War to put his, you know, all of his power and authority and uh, a very substantial fraction of his attention on that problem. And that's what has not happened. Uh, he has clearly privileged other important things, and they're obviously very important. He's the economy, climate change, uh, social spending, infrastructure, COVID. Uh, he, a president can't do everything, uh, and he has clearly decided that those things are more important. Uh, and there is legislation uh, on the federal level that would solve some of the problems uh, with uh, Democratic backsliding. Uh, in the states. Uh, it is being filibustered uh, by uh, Republicans. Uh, there are two Democrats who are not willing to change the filibuster rule. Mm -hmm. uh, and to the extent that 
Biden has put pressure on them. He's put pressure on them for the infrastructure bill and for Build Back Better, his um, social and economic spending bill, uh, and not on behalf of the voting legislation. Uh, meanwhile, you know, there was plainly a wide ranging conspiracy uh, to overthrow the elected president of the United States, to overthrow the, elect the election itself. Uh, there has got to be <laughs> a set of criminal charges that arise from that. But so far, uh, uh, the Justice Department and the states that um, have contemplated charges on these fronts, I mean, for example, Georgia uh, has contemplated charging Trump uh, with uh, attempting to subvert the lawful election by, among other things, calling the Secretary of State and demanding that he find 12,000 votes that would change the result of the election. Uh, none of them, none of these uh, prosecutorial authorities have moved so far. Uh, if the Justice Department is investigating the instigators and conspirators behind uh, the events of January 6th and behind the, over, over, the, the larger plot to overthrow democracy, uh, there has been no public sign of it so far. It's possible that there's a secret grand jury collecting evidence, uh, but we haven't seen it. And if a plot remains unpunished, then it's just rehearsal for the next one. Yeah. Let's bring in our first caller, Trisha from San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks, both of you. Barton, oh my God, thank God for you. Uh, what a terrific um, endeavor you're undertaking here. I am looking for an antidote. Um, I am activated with uh, donating and volunteering, and I moved to Georgia for six and a half weeks last year for the uh, Senate runoff. But uh, I, I keep feeling like I'm on Flight 97. You know, America is Flight 97. We're heading for the building. There's absolutely nothing between us and the building uh, to crash into it, which is the 2022 election when we have the state legislatures taking over the elections and suppression and this gerrymandering that uh, just disempowers and dilutes the votes of anyone that's uh, not a Republican um, or Trumpian. And uh, so I'm just wondering, like, is there um, an antidote? Is there a way to activate these 300 plus million who do not want violence. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, what, what are we to do? What's the mainstream media to do other than doing what you're doing? I mean, how do we amplify your work? How do we get corporations involved, um, voters, uh, and people of all parties who want to preserve our democracy? What's the paradigm shift that we need? Uh, what's the conversation we need to have? What are the actions we need to take? Because the simple you know, get out the vote and all that stuff is going to be um, fruitless if uh, we do all this work to overcome the voter suppression, which is a long shot. And then um, they just say, oh, we don't the votes like don't it. don't get counted. Yeah. Comes in. Thank you, Trish. All over. That's, um, yeah, I mean, that is, I think, the feeling of helplessness in, in California to preserve our democracy is, it's palpable in people that I'm talking to Bart Gelman, I mean, what do you think? What can, what can individual people do? And I think there's also this deeper question of how do we step back from political violence? You know, in your story, you compare the situation that we're in to possibly, you know, Northern Ireland at the start of the Troubles. And what do we, how do we step back from that, you know? 
So these are all really great questions and you're not going to like my answer because uh, mostly I don't know and, 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 uh, and fundamentally it's not my job to answer these questions. Uh, I mean, my little piece of this democratic ecosystem is figuring out what's going on and reporting it and uh, maybe analyzing some of its implications. Uh, thank God for the country that I'm not in charge of uh, deciding what we do because uh, it's not my skill set and it's not my role. Uh, but I would say that acquiring a sense of urgency, uh, looking squarely at what's happening uh, and deciding to put resources into it is the first step. And if this article causes people to say, we've got to do more than we're doing, then I think it has uh, achieved one of its main goals. Uh, but for example, there, there is, there is uh, a fundamentally local uh, set of forces around the country in which Republicans are running people for, for precinct jobs and local committee men and committee women uh, and county clerks and county election authorities all, all around the country. And it is looking for people who believe in the big lie to take over the job of counting the vote next time. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm not seeing a comparably uh, rich and broad effort happening on the Democratic side. So, you know, that's one thing. Uh, presidents have a lot of power uh, in terms of uh, uh, bully pulpit and the application of resources. And I don't know what Biden uh, should do. I don't even know all of what he could do, but I believe that if he wants to do more, he could. Okay, yeah. We're talking with the Atlantic staff writer, Barton Gellman, about his piece January 6th was practice about right-wing plans to subvert the next presidential election. And we do want to hear from you. Join us with your reactions or questions for Bart Gellman. Numbers 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786 can also get in touch forum at kqed.org. Lori writes, I'm terrified that the Republican gerrymandering and other machinations in Southern states will make it unfair for Democrats and democracy in general for the decade and beyond. The Freedom to Vote Act is our best remedy, but it's being held up by Manchin and Sinema. What to do? What to do indeed. Stay tuned for more forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Bart Gelman, Atlantic staff writer, about his new piece, January 6th, was 
practice. Want to add caller Eric from Mountain View into our conversation. Welcome, Eric. Hi, thank you. Yes, you know, I, I, I'm supporting you, and I'm very glad that you're doing this article, and I'm very concerned about what happened January 6th. But I also think it doesn't it does us a disservice if we misunderstand the mainstream, you know, right. And so, for instance, some of your points, like saying, for instance, replacement theory is being pushed by, you know, Fox News. You know, I, I really don't. I think that's a, uh, you know, taking some comments that they've 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 made about uh, immigration causing uh, changes to our culture, you know, which we may or may not agree with. But then, you know, mapping that to the most extreme and hideous uh, interpretation, which is this, you know, replacement theory, for instance. So I think that, you know, if we make a, too much of a monolithic boogeyman out of, out of the other side, you know, I don't think that helps us either. And if we overestimate the support, the mainstream support that these insurrectionists has, have, you know, I don't think that helps us either. Mm, yeah. Eric, thanks. For that. You know, Bart Gelman, do you want to address that? I mean, one of the things that, that occurs to me listening to Eric is just that, the researchers that you talked to did find really only one meaningful correlation on the demographics of that group, which was just that the dropping percentage of the non-Hispanic white population increased the likelihood of people participating in the insurrection, which I think you said. But do you want to address the other point about not overestimating the strength, depth, or numbers of the insurrectionist types? Yeah, I, I, I think you make a good point. Uh, and you use the word monolith, it is absolutely not true that uh, Trump supporters, even strong Trump supporters, are monolithic. Uh, and they are not, by any means, all uh, exponents or secret supporters, subconscious supporters of white power. Nevertheless, uh, there is a significant fraction of them who are. Uh, and uh, Tucker Carlson, unambiguously, uh, using the words great replacement, um, has on multiple occasions uh, on his broadcast, devoted time to explaining why it is something to be afraid of. Uh, he, he says specifically that Democrats uh, are trying to allow uh, unrestricted immigrations and to give illegal immigrants the right to vote so that they can outnumber whites uh, in this country and change the uh, political balance of power. Uh, all that said, there are lots of uh, Trump supporters who, who don't who, who don't support this, the one thing to be clear about is that of the smaller group, I mean, there are 68% of all Republicans believe that the election was stolen, which is a catastrophic number for our political culture uh, and for faith and confidence in our institutions. Uh, but but the, uh, the 8% of the American population who believe uh, that violence is justified to restore Donald Trump to power. Though that those 21 million people uh, believe by a supermajority uh, in the Great Replacement Theory, uh, so it's them in particular I'm talking about. Yeah, and I think it's true. It's not certainly not everybody, but it is a massive number. And the, one of the points you make in the story is that it's not actually the kind of fringe actors, the proud boys. It's not, uh, it's not people who've, you know, suffered major economically that this is actually in, in a way, a, a middle class pro violence movement, which we haven't seen in the United States in, in quite some time. And in fairness, I mean, just think about it, David, if, if you were induced to believe, really believe in your gut that, 
the U.S. government had been taken over by a tyrant who stole the office. Uh, and thinking about American history and the way it has handled uh, tyrants who held power illegitimately, uh, it's not surprising that your thoughts would turn to violence. Yeah. Yep. Let's bring in caller Tim from Sebastopol. Tim, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, I've been thinking about this for years, uh, and I believe the roots of all this social um, separation can be traced right back to the removal of the fairness doctrine and uh, the rapid expansion of conservative talk radio through the late 80s and through the 90s, and then the wild expansion under the uh, Telecommunications Act, I believe it was, in 94. And, uh, you know, the Democrats have their hands in both of those um, changes in policy. And it's just kind of coming back to bite them in the butt. I mean, it all comes down to propaganda. And, you know, conservative talk radio before the Internet was the big vehicle. I mean, 24-7, tens of thousands of stations across the nation you know, distorting and confusing people uh, in every, you know, backroads, you know, middle class workshop or whatever it is. And, you know, it, it's like now the FCC has been such a round robin industry agency that it doesn't enforce its own rules. There's a woman, and I can't remember her name, and she's got a whole um, agency or whatever you call it that, uh, has been tracking this whole phenomenon for decades, and I wish I could tell her name, but without a meaningful uh, FCC going after these big stations like Clear Channel, Sinclair, Fox, and uh, really checking their licensing requirements and stuff like that, you know, that's to me, that's the crux. It's propaganda and information. Information, and yeah. In the minds of the, yeah. I mean, and, and until, until you do something meaningful about that, uh, and change that landscape, you know, people are just going to keep believing. I mean, look at Rwanda, look at Nazi Germany. It was all propaganda yeah. spread over decades. Hey, thank you for that uh, perspective, Tim. Barkham, I, I, I want to ask you about that. The, the right-wing media ecosystem at this point um, basically has no connection with like what we're doing right now. Um, and unless we become a, a viral, uh, piece of, of the right wing, but it's like those fears don't really cross. Are there actual things that could be done in the, in the con like policy things or is, does the issue sort of lie somewhere else? I, I, I think that Tim has put his finger on, on uh, the core of the problem, uh, which is that, you know, epistemologically, we are not sharing as Americans any common foundation of fact. Uh, what you find when you talk to the, uh, many of the convinced Trump supporters is that they are getting information from unreliable sources uh, that are simply making stuff up. Mm -hmm. And the fairness doctrine for those uh, listeners who uh, don't recall, used to say that if you wanted to use public airwaves 
you had to present both sides of every question. Uh, you couldn't uh, you couldn't be a purely democratic or a purely liberal or a purely conservative or Republican uh, outlet. Um, for every uh, representative of one side you had on air, you had to have another. Uh, there was a policy change in that, but it also was, uh, I, if I recall correctly, the Supreme Court in the Red Lion case uh, held, uh, don't hold me to this, but uh, there were First Amendment problems with forcing uh, 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 media companies to broadcast uh, both right. sides. Uh, these days, that train has just left the station. I mean, and 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 the even even the justification for the fairness doctrine, which is that the that uh, television uh, was using scare a scarce public resource uh, of uh, certain frequencies of public airwaves, that's gone now. The internet has an unlimited bandwidth for opinion, uh, and. Uh, there's simply no, no chance of of, of uh, putting that horse putting that back in the corral. Down. Yeah, yeah. Jillian writes, seems like Biden is really hamstrung if he does more and calls out Republicans as doing all these things. The Republicans will cry cancel culture and bash him for, quote unquote, being partisan when he ran on being president for everyone. Certainly seems to be uh, what what President Biden uh, is thinking. Let's bring in Marshall from San Jose. Welcome to the show, Marshall. Hi, thanks for taking my call, uh, Barton. I'm a big fan of your journalism, uh, and thanks for doing this show. I just was curious if there are other um, places where this type of takeover has happened. I mean, in my mind, places like the Philippines or Spain or potentially uh, Argentina that kind of found themselves in this situation. Would highlighting kind of the, the initial years and, and or the initial years and how that took place help waken people up a little bit. I mean, I feel like um, we've really been let down by um, pop culture in this moment. Uh, I feel like, um, you know, there was a role for maybe Hollywood and artists and, and things like that to galvanize around this moment. I feel like we're kind of just floundering without any um, momentum. And I'm just wondering, you know, to the earlier caller's question about what it would take to kind of wake up uh, a lot of people who appear to be sleepwalking to the actual threat uh, that's coming. So yeah. curious about that. And uh, thanks again for the show. Thank you so much, Marshall. I mean, one of the things that your your comment makes me think of is right after the inauguration of Joe Biden on January 20th, just about every website that published political news experienced a massive drop in readership. I think people just were so relieved that it seemed like the Trump era was was over for people who were, were opposing him and his policies that um, people don't want to come back to this reality. Do you think that's true, Bart? Like in, and, and I do, to Marshall's you know, other point, really does seem like there are lessons in other countries. I'm just not sure if Americans know how to apply those things to, to what we see as an exceptional country too often. That's exactly what I was going to say is that the American exceptionalism uh, includes a belief that uh, we're not susceptible to the problems of other countries or that uh, we just don't see ourselves in it. I mean, if you were looking for parallels, I think that uh, political scientists who study the decline of democracy in other places might point you uh, toward Poland uh, and Hungary, for example, in, 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 in the present day. And uh, you can read some terrific uh, reporting about that in the Atlantic uh, by Ann Applebaum, mm -hmm. my colleague. Uh, but I 
don't know that uh, viscerally uh, most Americans are going to see themselves uh, in, uh, you know, Polish or Hungarian institutions with right. long, unpronounceable names. So I need to ask you this, Bart. I mean, this is like the, the, the big question here. Let's say the worst version of the plan that you describe in the new feature succeeds. Democrats win by a lot, both popular vote, also electoral college, or but then Trump's state house steel plan kind of goes into effect, gets the seal of approval from the Supreme Court and all of that. What do we do then? Not as, de- but, not as Democrats, but as democracy supporters. Like, what do we do? Yeah, I, 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 I have a hard time picturing that moment. And I, I somehow believe in my gut, and it may be denial, it may be a failure of imagination. I somehow believe that it won't happen, that somehow this will be stopped. But I, I can't tell you how. Uh, if it did happen, uh, if Biden... Uh, won the vote in the battleground states, assuming he's running again, and Trump, assuming he's the nominee, uh, uh, gets the state houses to simply hand him their electors, uh, there would be unprecedented uh, civil disturbances in this country. We might have a general strike. We might have millions of people on the streets. Uh, we might have uh, God, God help us. We we might have uh, uh, big uh, and uh, violent questions about whose orders the military is going to follow. Um, if uh, we might have two people uh, taking the oath of office on January twentieth, uh, it, it it doesn't it doesn't bear imagination, and uh, you know it's not going to be a good thing, and we have to try to prevent that. Bill writes, feels like America is a bus being pushed off a cliff by millions of citizens who are being told and believe that the cliff is an illusion and the bus can fly anyway. Will enough Americans in the battleground states wake up before it is too late? Independents, Democrats, and Republicans who believe in liberty and democracy unite in common cause, if not despair. I think you know, one of the last questions I want to ask you is about addressing sort of the white grievances that, you know, the political scientists found are driving a lot of the people who support political violence in the United States. Did they give any indication of, of how some of those deeper issues could be addressed? Like how to combat this idea of the quote unquote great replacement and these, these kinds of ideas that have migrated from the fringe right of white nationalists into kind of the core of the party? You know, actually, that's the next step. Uh, uh, Robert Pape at the University of Chicago um, uh, leads a study group there that is has been gathering all this scary data for the purpose of trying to understand what policy interventions uh, might diffuse the violence, might might diffuse the passions behind it. Uh, and I expect that. Uh, as early as next month, he's going to start to uh, he's going to start to put out the fruits of his research on that, uh, and he has a track record here. Uh, he studied suicide bombing uh, as a, a tool of political violence in Iraq and Afghanistan, and uh, helped come up with policies uh, by understanding what the roots of it were uh, that 
that uh, that did diminish it considerably. Hmm. Uh, so I have some hope that he's going to he's going to turn up some ideas for us. Uh, there was a there was an interesting point made made earlier. Uh, well, you know what? I'm going to leave that for you to ask if or let the next questioner. Oh, sure. Well, um, Ron, listener Ron writes, what about the committee in the House studying January 6th? Will it help? And I'll extend that just a, a tiny bit. Are well, any of these uh, investigations into what happened on January 6th, can any of those things help forestall what you foresee coming in 2024? I think the answer could be yes. Uh, the House committee, I think, uh, although it is it is formally investigating what happened on January 6th understands that what that the that the actual several hours of violence inside the capitol uh, that moment was the culmination of a coherent set of actions that resulted from a conspiracy to try to overthrow the election that began before and lasted after January 6th uh, and it, it is showing every sign in terms of uh, its investigation and who's appearing before uh, it's and testifying who is um, who is being asked for documents. Uh, it's showing every sign that it is looking more broadly at the problem than just uh, several thousand people descending on the Capitol at a you know particular moment in time. Yeah, and by exposing that, uh, I I think I think it could have a, a real effect on public opinion. Uh, and it is gathering evidence that would be useful to uh, prosecutions, uh, which are beyond the purview of the House. Uh, but if you have sworn statements, sworn evidence, uh, that could come in handy in another forum. Yeah. want to read one last little bit from your original Atlantic piece in September of 2020. You said, let us not hedge about one thing. Donald Trump may win or lose, but he will never concede, not under any circumstance, not during the interregnum and not afterward. If compelled in the end to vacate his office, Trump will insist from exile as long as he draws breath that the context that the contest was rigged. So many things flowing from that core truth. Thank you so much for joining us, Bart Gelman, Atlantic staff writer. Thank you for having me. We've been talking with Bart Gelman about his piece, January 6th with Practice, about right-wing plans to subvert the next presidential election. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.